Now shall we turn to the word of God this evening, read in a number of places in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 1, Revelation, chapter 1, verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the breasts with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto burnished brass, as if it had been refined in a furnace, and his voice, as the voice of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth proceeded a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. Write therefore the things which thou sawest, and the things which are, and the things which shall come to pass hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are seven churches. And then follows, of course, the message to the seven churches. We will just read in chapter 2, verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then... In verse 11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Verse 17, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, to him will I give of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and I will give him, and upon the stone a new name written, which no one knoweth, but he that receiveth it. Verse 26 and to 28. And he that overcometh, and he that keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessel vessels of the potter are broken to shivers as I also have received of my father and I will give him the morning star he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith to the churches chapter 3 and verse 5 and 6 he that overcometh shall thus be arrayed in white garments and I will in no wise blot out his name uh, from the book of life 
and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And verse 12 and 13. He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out thence no more, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and mine own new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And then in verse 21 and 22, He that overcometh I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 to 12. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, Now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down who accuseth them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe for the earth and for the sea, because the devil has gone down unto you, having great wrath, knowing that he hath but a short time. And lastly, in Revelation 21, from verse 5 to 7, And he that sitteth on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he saith, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said unto me, They are come to pass. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Overcoming or kingship or reigning with Christ. We introduce the whole subject as we kind of bird's eye view of the matter from Genesis to Revelation um, in that one uh, evening. And then we began to look at some of the lives of uh, those great men of God in the, under the old covenant. We looked at Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. Uh, we looked at Moses and Joshua We looked at David and Solomon. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to look at Elijah or Daniel, Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah, which is a great shame. Maybe we'll be able to come back to that on another occasion. Uh, 
We looked at the remnant that returned from Babylon, uh, who were really true overcomers. And then finally, on our far last evening that we had together on this matter, the last time I spoke on it, we looked at the Lord Jesus Christ as the overcomer, who sums up in himself all the qualities we saw in these servants of the Lord. Um, and we saw that really uh, we have got to go the same way as the Lord Jesus. We have to overcome as he overcame. And the most wonderful thing of all is that he is with us. He is in us by the Spirit of God to overcome and to make available to us all the power of his own overcoming life and nature. And that is, of course, the key to the whole thing. I do hope you grasped that when last we spoke um, about this matter. Now, this evening, I would like uh, to um, look at this matter of reigning with Christ or overcoming or kingship, however you like to view it, um, in three vital spheres, uh, three very practical spheres, um, in which, really, the Lord is looking for us to reign with his Son, here and now. We're going to know something of reigning with him in the kingdom that is to come. If we're to know something about really sitting down uh, with him in his throne and administering the government of God in the ages that are to come, then there are three spheres in which we, as the people of God, have got to know uh, uh, overcoming. It is very interesting, isn't it, when we look at the book of Revelation. For a long, long time, this book of Revelation, upon which so many complex theories have been developed, and over which I must say that when one reads some of the books on it, one almost feels like putting an ice pack on one's head and going back to the Bible for relief. Uh, you know, when you read some of the theories and things, even our beloved brother Watchmanee, I do really feel a bit like uh, the Apostle Peter in this matter saying there are things hard to be understood in this last book um, of his. Um, uh, well, I don't know if you've found that out uh, yet. Um, I'm sure there is a tremendous amount that will be of great use to us all, but we find on the whole the things written on the book of Revelation to be extremely hard to take in. And, of course, if you only confine yourself to one book, you'll do a little better. Um, but if you are an avid reader and you start off on one book and feel that you've got some sort of pattern or outline for the book of Revelation, and then you get another which completely demolishes the first, uh, that's when you begin to get somewhat confused and perplexed. And when you go on to the third and the fourth and the fifth, um, which uh, tend to demolish all the, the previous theories, in the end you sink almost for the third time, uh, never uh, to come up again on the matter of a clear understanding of the book of Revelation. It is an interesting fact that the book of Revelation was one of the books most contested in the early church. And in fact it did not 
um, come to its final position as the last book of the canon of Scripture until uh, about the fourth century after Christ, when it was finally universally recognized and accepted and came to occupy the last place in the 66 books of the Bible. Of course, it was the sovereignty of God that brought this book to its right place as the conclusion of inspired scripture, as the conclusion, the summing up of the word of God. And it is therefore very interesting that when we come to it, we find that there is so much to do with the overcomer. The book opens with the, the risen Christ in the midst of seven very ordinary local churches. It is interesting that a number of the other churches uh, that we have uh, records of in um, Acts are not mentioned here, but seven are selected. Some are mentioned there. But seven are selected, and we find the risen Christ, an extraordinary vision of the risen Christ in the midst of seven golden lampstands, each of which represents one of these local churches. Now, our Lord could have said all kinds of things to these churches. But without exception, after putting his finger upon anything that was wrong in those churches, or finding nothing wrong, commending them, without exception, he ends up his message to each of the seven churches speaking about the overcomer. One therefore can only deduce that this matter of overcoming is of tremendous importance to our risen Lord. If he had not mentioned it with Philadelphia, it would have perhaps lessened it a little. <laughs> but even to the church at Philadelphia, he speaks just indeed. He says even more about overcoming. And some of the most glorious things that are said about it are said to the church, which he commends. That is the importance of this matter. That when our Lord looks at the churches, that is the church in time, and on earth, and in given localities, the thing... Whatever he sees right or wrong, whether he can only commend or only rebuke, or whether it's a mixture of rebuke and commendation, the one message that comes through it, that sums up everything that's on his heart, is the matter of overcoming. Which means, of course, that our Lord today still is in the midst of churches, still speaking, still removing lampstands.
still rebuking, still commending, and still saying the same thing about overcoming. 2,000 years have made no difference to the vital importance of this matter to our Lord. Because this whole matter of overcoming is to do with the ages to come. It is to do with the administration of the kingdom. It is to do with the throne of God and its practical outworking. It is interesting that when we come to the end of the book of Revelation, we find no more talk about local churches, no more talk about the people of God on earth, no more talk about them being in time, on earth, and in given localities. Instead, we find the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. And it is interesting that then we get the same extraordinary bringing together of two things, some things which seem to be to do with salvation and almost initial things in the Christian life, when our Lord says, he that is a thirst, let him drink, and so on. In Revelation uh, 21 and verse um, 6, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life, Freely, and then goes on to this matter which is the objective of everything. He that overcometh shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. In other words, a growing up son. A son who can take responsibility. A son who can administer the will of his father and the riches of his father and the power and authority of his father. It is a marvelous picture. The we, we saw at the beginning seven golden lampstands. When we come to the end of the book of Revelation, we have really one great golden lampstand. We are told, for instance, that the light in which the nations will walk will be the glory of God and of the Lamb. The glory of God did lighten it, and then it says, and the Lamb is the lamp thereof. Then who is the stand? The stand, the lamp stand, is the city. The lamp stand, you and I, those who have really, by the grace of God alone, overcome, constitute the lamp stand. The lamb is the lamp, and the glory of God is the light in the lamp. It is a most wonderful picture. And the final word, of course, is in Revelation 22 and uh, verse 3, there shall be no curse anymore. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be therein and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads and there shall be no night no more and they need no light of lamp, neither light of sun, for the Lord God shall give them light and they shall reign forever and ever. It is a most wonderful word, profound in its simplicity, but tremendous in its power. 
They shall reign forever and ever. In the midst of it all, in Revelation chapter 12, we have those wonderful words, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and that they loved not their lives even unto death. Now, I won't speak about that this evening. Maybe we shall have another evening on this, and I will perhaps just talk about the constituents of overcoming, the actual constituents of overcoming. Um, but tonight, what I want to just say is this. We have an overall picture in this last book of uh, the Bible, this conclusion of the inspired canon. We have this overall picture beginning with the risen Christ in the midst of the seven golden lampstands and speaking to them, saints, believers, redeemed children of God, meeting together in a special way on a certain foundation. And he speaks to them all about this matter of overcoming. And then we span the whole age and we see at the end the golden lampstand itself. The glory of God, the light, the lamb, the lamp, and the stand, the city. And we see the nations walking in the light of it. It is a most wonderful picture. And we hear again those wonderful words as that wife of the Lamb comes down out of heaven. Uh, we hear these wonderful words to him that overcometh. He that overcometh shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. If this matter is so vital... What are the spheres in which we, as the people of God, are to overcome? First of all, this whole matter of kingship, or reigning with Christ, or overcoming, is related to the individual. It is related to the individual. You cannot hide in the mass. There is something about us all that likes to hide in the mass. Oh, we're always talking about the heaviness of the whole thing and how difficult it is. But we hide in the mass. We would, we would hate it if we were suddenly put on the spot. We would hate it if suddenly some divine finger were to isolate us and say, now you. We love to be able to talk about the whole and say, oh, it's so difficult. You know all of them. And they are this, and they are that. Well, you know what Halford House is. That kind of thing. But we don't want to be isolated. My word, we would die a million deaths if the finger of the Spirit were somehow or other to point to us and we were isolated and challenged and then we really had to do something. We live in the day of mass media, mass movements, everything's en masse. We've never had a population problem such as we have today. Growingly, it is so. And the easiest thing for believers now, having seen something of the nature of the church and having seen something of the corporate, the essential corporate nature of what God is doing, to hide in the mass. And it is a very easy thing. You only have to have a nucleus of people who really know the Lord and know what God is after, and the rest can hide in it. Until they are taken to be with the Lord, or something happens, we can hide. 
We can just drift along in a fool's paradise thinking that in fact we're really getting places when in fact God says we're getting nowhere. Coming along to times of worship, coming along to times of prayer, never really participating, always comforting ourselves that somehow or other our very presence surely is some sign to God and God looks on the heart, which he certainly does, and doesn't take too much note of the lip. We are entirely wrong. For you are not only saved with the heart, but with the lip. And that is a principle that we find shot through everything. That until we are prepared with the lip to confess what we believe in the heart, God never commits himself fully. So we can hide in the mess. You younger ones, as one of the great problems of a second generation, how many times we've prayed, God preserve us from a second generation. May we all be first generation in spirit. Because the second generation finds that everything's been done by the first generation. All the battles, the essential battles have been fought and won. All the sort of positions have been uh, 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 spied out and taken. And now the second generation comes into all the good of it. And it's very, very possible, you know, to hide in the first generation. Just somehow or other to come along into it without original personal, intimate, direct experience of the Lord. But you will notice what our Lord says, not in one single instance will all our Lord's concern for the building of the church, for all our Lord's avowed concern for the completion of the house of God, not a, on a single occasion does our Lord say to those who have an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to them. But you would have thought that would have been so, wouldn't you? Normally you would think if God was speaking to the church, if the Spirit is speaking to the church, it is to the church. Let them hear. But the Lord doesn't say, he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear. The whole accent and emphasis is upon the individual. You can't escape. You can't blame the elders. You can't blame other responsible brothers or sisters. You can't blame half and house. God's finger comes down to you. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It is a corporate matter. But it's a question of your ear, your hearing, your attending, your understanding, your obedience. You see again that the Lord never says to those that overcome, will I grant. He says again and again, and in some cases it is extraordinary, extraordinary the way the Lord emphasizes the thing. For instance, you notice in Revelation 2 how it is put, especially in the first few churches. It says in verse 7, To him that overcometh, to him will I grant. As if our Lord is really emphasizing it by saying it twice. This is a personal matter. To him that overcometh, to him will I grant. 
this or that or the other. You will notice, wherever you look, if you want the verses, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 26, chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 5, verse 12, verse 21, without exception, our Lord says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said to the churches. To him that overcometh, to him. Or later on, him that overcometh, well, I grant to sit down with me, and so on. But the point is, there is something, the Lord puts his finger on personal, original, spiritual character. You'll never get that second hand. That is the one thing you will never get second hand. You can find a little bit of other people's character brush off on you. You can find something of their experience brush off on you. But dear child of God, there's one thing you can never get in that second hand experience. It's only really hearsay. You have to have your own experience of the Lord and your own experience of coming to a place of ascendancy. Your own experience of being made to sit together with Christ in heavenly places. Well then where is it going to happen? It has to first of all happen within your personal circumstances. That's why so often our Lord takes very real note of the very small things in our lives. If we cannot get the ascendancy at the kitchen sink. We're certainly not going to reign with Christ in the ages to come. If we can't get ascendancy in the office, we're not going to have ascendancy in the ages to come. Do you understand? We sometimes think, oh, well, there are these little things, little things. But it is these little things that make or break us. And it is in these very small, petty circumstances, the routine of daily life, that somehow or other this whole matter of overcoming is reduced to a question of spiritual character. Your spiritual character, my spiritual character. You see, you may have faith to remove a mountain. I may see the mountain go, but it doesn't do anything for me. Now listen carefully what I'm saying. If I have faith, or you, let's put it the other way, let's say you have faith to remove a mountain, to really tackle a big problem. Now, thank God you use it. And we see that obstacle disappear. Well, of course I'm full of joy. I come in on the good of it. But it hasn't done anything for me. I've come into blessing. I've come into some spiritual facility because of it. I say, but I haven't been made one whit more able to govern. You get, you get what I'm trying to say? What I'm trying to say is this, is you won't always have great big problems such as the church has to face at times, but God will allow a lot of problems to come into your life so that you have to face that in faith or unbelief, and there's no alternative. 
There is no alternative. You either face it in unbelief and say, no, 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 it can't happen. Can't, not for me, not for me. I'm such a small person. I'm such an insignificant person. Of course, I suppose the Lord's angry with me anyway. So you sing. You don't know what it is to be, to have the faith of Abraham. But there are issues in your life where God speaks to you and only you can have the obedience of faith. I can't do it for you, much as I would like to. You can't do it for me, much as you may like to do it for me. It's impossible. We can bless one another. Thank God for the blessing we mean. I mean, it's a dreadful thing to be a curse to one another, isn't it? Um, or a weight on one another, and all that kind of thing. But what a wonderful thing it is when we're, we're a blessing to, to the saints. Just our presence, just our contribution, just our experience, a blessing to others. People feel it as they come to us, as they touch us. But dear child of God, you may be the greatest blessing in the whole world to me and to everybody else, but unless I learn to exercise faith, unless I know resurrection life as we saw it in Isaac, unless I know what it is to be transformed by the renewing of my mind personally, unless I know what it is through discipline and suffering to come to the throne, there is no possibility of real advance in my life in this matter of overcoming. Our Lord Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. You can't learn obedience by my obedience. You see, I mean, it's so... You can't... You, you and I, we can only learn obedience by the things which each one of us suffer. Now, God is so kind and loving, he doesn't give you the kind of things he gave Watchman Nee. Why, my dear child, if God were to brainwash and allow you to get brainwashed, you'd probably, it's not only your brain that would get washed, I reckon <laughs> you'd disappear. God is so gracious in these things. We sort of say, oh, I'd never, of course you couldn't. God doesn't put you in prison, in solitary confinement for 20 years. He knows that it, it, it will just finish you. But God has given you your own little experience of trial. God has allowed to come into your circumstances the kinds of things which in his loving grace and mercy are absolutely suitable to you. Now, you don't think it. Oh, you don't listen to the Lord. You listen to the devil on this matter. The devil comes to you and says, you can't, you can't worship the Lord. Good gracious, if you got this thing removed, you would. But I mean, with a boss like that, to ruin anyone's life. Or, or you've got family circumstances like that, children like that. Because <laughs> if you were like so-and-so, I mean, with that, that marvellous pattern family, you'd be raring to go. But you can't do it. And remember what it says in Timothy. <laughs> I mean. And so, you see, we sink into ourselves. We finish. We feel that our circumstances are really almost too much. And that, that well, if the Lord doesn't change them, well, that, that's too bad then. That's the end. But in actual fact, God knows all about your circumstances. They have been allowed with, with a very real wisdom behind them. Because they are just what is required for you to come out in Christ. You know, to grow up in Christ. 
He doesn't give you the big things. He gives you what you can bear. But we don't feel that we can, we can bear them. Now, it's just supposing the Lord gave you something which you know, Ah! Now! I can get my teeth into that, Lord. See? I mean, that's not overcoming. I mean, if you can walk over those things, that's not overcoming. Now, if the Lord gives you something which your immediate reaction is, Oh! It's too much! Too much! That's too much! That's finishing me. Then it's either faith or unbelief. It's either resurrection life or death. It's either the transforming, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, or your mind being fashioned according to this world. You either reject the discipline and suffering, and do not come to the throne, or you accept it. Do you see what I mean? You see, God doesn't just put it all on a plate. He's not just going to sort of carry us through. He allows things to come in which he knows very well are not too much for us. There is enough grace. There is enough spiritual character. There is enough faith in us to come through. Now, if we would only look on, listen to the Lord on these things, instead of listening to the enemy, why, it would change our whole attitude to circumstances, to our personal circumstances, to problems we're facing, why we'd see it as a tremendous challenge to the Lord in us. To, ah, my father's behind this. Even if it's a messenger from Satan, my father's behind this thing. And he has a purpose of grace in all this to draw out in me the character and life of his son. Now, you may go down. Don't be frightened of going down. People seem to think that, you know, they should never go down. That the Christian life is, you are always above. You never go down. But that is not the principle of Calvary. You must go down in order to come up. And the more you go down, believe me, the more you will come up. It is an unalterable law. It is a very hard thing when you're going down to say, aha, well, praise God, I'm going down because I'm now going to go up. I'm going up. But once you've really seen the Lord work in this way, you can almost rejoice as you're on the way down. And if you go down farther than you've ever gone down, or you'll praise the Lord, you're going to go up farther than you've ever been before. It's an unalterable law. If you go down, you must go up. Providing there is faith. If you go down with unbelief and all that false artificial modesty that so many of us, of us dress ourselves up with, of course you don't emerge. You go down to the bottom and you stay on the bottom. You have to go down in faith. You're letting go. You're not letting go of God's purpose for you to bring you to the throne. You're not letting go of the fact that you are going to be above and not beneath. You're going to be the head and not the tail. That you should be set up on high. That you should be made to sit together with Christ in heavenly places. But you know that the way to go up is to go down. You let go. You surrender. You allow the breaking. Thus, you see, God works in the most wonderful way in our personal circumstances, in our business life, in our family life. This is where God puts the whole thing, really, uh, to the test. 
to him that overcometh, to him will I grant this and this and this and this. There can be no coming to the throne en masse. Thank God for fellowship. Thank God for being able to share. Thank God for the prayer of the church. But you and I will never come to the throne just simply because of others. We will only ever come to the throne because of the Lord in us, each one. Therefore, remembering the, the finiteness of our little clay minds, our created minds, which it is always a salutary thing to remember. I don't know. Here some believers talk, you would think they'd got minds like God. That they can contain everything in their minds. I think it's a salutary thing to rem remind ourselves that we have finite minds, created minds that are incapable ever of holding the whole truth. Not even at the end of eternity will we hold the whole truth in one person. And of course, the trouble with us is that when we get a new truth, we expel an old one, don't we? As soon as we see something new, out with the old, see? We, we just can't hold the new truth along with the old. We're not like our Lord said about the man who had old uh, treasures as well as new treasures. But we get rid of the old treasures and we can only trade in the new. That's a mistake. We have very small minds. But I think it is a tremendous thing just to remember that God has a purpose for every one of our lives. And that he has chosen our circumstances and our way for us because he has a way to bring us to the throne. Now, I, I trust the Lord will forgive me for saying this, but he knows what I mean. You see, if I had been the Lord, and you can be very thankful, <laughs> I am not. If I had been the Lord, I would never have allowed Watchman Nee to be imprisoned for 20 years. I would have said, when the whole world is crying out for ministry, for real ministry of the world, for deep ministry of the world, for vision of God's purpose. And here is a vessel that has not only seen but been tested to the nth degree. I would have said, now, we'll put him in for five years, ten years, fifteen years, but even twenty years, but we'll get him out and then we'll get him all over the world. We'll let people see what I've done in this man. We'll let people taste of what I've done in this man. We'll let this man become a chosen vessel by which all this is poured out in even greater fullness than ever before. Not God. 
He takes a man with one of the greatest ministries in the history of the church and he shuts him up in a solitary cell for 20 years and when he's released within a month he's died. Now the world would say that is waste. But as sure as I stand here this evening you will discover one day that God had such a concern for men, for his government, that he was prepared to take a man with a ministry like that, put him in a cell for 20 years in order to teach him to reign with Christ. That may explain a lot of things that God is doing with you on a very much smaller level and scale. We think we're so clever. We question God. We'd argue with God. We tell him the clay. We would tell the potter, what do you think you're doing? You shouldn't do it like this. You should do it this way. But God knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And this matter of reigning with Christ is so important that he will even take a man with a ministry like that and train him alone. A man who knew more about the body of Christ than probably anyone else. At least was able to communicate truth about it in the most wonderful and living way. Now God did the same with the Apostle Paul. I know he called himself Paul the aged, but he was only 66. We don't think of someone at 66 as being aged, with uh, apologies to anyone who's near that age. <laughs> but the Apostle Paul called himself Paul the aged, and God took him home when he was 66 years of age. You would have thought the churches could have done with him for another 10 years. Think of the letters that could have been written, we might have thought. Think of the council that could have... Perhaps those churches that turned away from him in Asia could have been somehow strengthened. Perhaps some of the rot that began to set in could have been halted, perhaps even purged out. But not the Lord. He evidently taught Paul things in those last days and years in prison that were entirely to do with the age to come entirely to do with government. I remember years ago listening to an old servant of the Lord at Honor Oak. She gave a testimony at one time. I can't remember another thing that happened in that particular meeting, but to this day, that old sister, thin as a beanpole, and almost as tall, one of the tallest ladies I ever remember seeing, white-haired, eagle-nosed. She was Swiss. I remember to this day her testimony, pioneering work in Congo, and she said one thing I'd never forgotten. She said, I am where there is no house of God, where there are no other believers. But I have proved daily the fellowship of the body of Christ. 
she was alone. But she knew the fellowship of the body of Christ. She stood into her position in the house of God. That doesn't mean that all of us should now go away and be sort of isolate ourselves. From, you see, we have one another. But isn't it amazing that God can take a person right out there in the job with no possibility of fellowship and we have all the luxury of it and all the privileges of it, all the advantages of it and teach someone there on their own deep, deep lessons about the body of Christ. I'm sure God did that with Watchmanee and he did it with Apostle Paul and with many uh, 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 another. Now, you see, this whole matter of kingship, therefore, is related to the individual. I dwell upon this matter because so often it's forgotten and I, I note that in some of these movements that are going off the rails, it is on this very line that the rot seems to start. Somehow the whole thing becomes omnesh. Just simply drifting with one another. God preserve us from those eccentric nutcases uh, that the Lord's people are so often blessed with. As Professor Blakelock used to call them, God's awkward squad. We don't want their number to grow. But we don't mean by being individuals, having original spiritual character, that we become queer or eccentric or somehow individualists. We mean that each one of us has our own knowledge of the Lord. Each one of us has our own experience of the Lord. And more than that, each one of us is being brought to the place where we're sitting with Christ in heavenly places in our own circumstances. Now that leads me to this second sphere, um, which is that this matter of kingship and overcoming is related to the house of God, to the church of God. You notice that the, the overcomer, the Lord Jesus, is in the midst of seven churches. And those seven churches indicate the completeness of the church. Whether you look at it as being the whole of church history in seven phases, as some interpret it, or whether you look upon it as the whole church of God in time and on earth. But however we look at it, it is completeness. And it is in the midst of that church, the churches, that we find the overcomer. The one who has overcome and sat down in his father's throne. Now, kingship, listen to me, overcoming is related to the purpose of God. My dear friend, you can't ever expect to administer the will of God and the government of God if you have been blind to the purpose of God in your own generation. People get into such a state over this. They say, well, you know, about this matter of the church, what about Martin Luther? He didn't see it. What about John Wesley? He didn't see it. What about George Fox? Just wait. Martin Luther served the counsel of God in his own generation. What God showed him, he obeyed. He was an overcomer. So was Tringley. So was Calvin. 
so were others. They saw truth and they obeyed to the hilt what God showed. God never expected them to do more than he'd shown them. In his day, it was a phase of recovery and what he was out to recover, they gave themselves to the Lord for. As it is said of David, they, he served the counsel of God in his own generation, according to his own generation. What is the counsel of God in our generation? What is the thing God is doing in our generation? What is the phase of recovery that is in our generation? Because if you and I want to really know something about kingship, then we have got to see not only what was the purpose of God and what he has done, but we have to see what he is doing now and commit ourselves to it, lock, stock, and barrel. It doesn't matter where you find them. The overcomers in every generation are those who serve the counsel of God in their own generation. If Abraham had tried to be Enoch, he would have been a fool. And if Moses had tried to be Abraham, he would have been a fool. Now I mean by that, if Moses had just gone out with his own family and said, we'll go to the promised land, he had to lead a people. Abraham, if Abraham had tried to take the whole of Ur, and preached in the streets of Ur and said, now everybody, everybody, anyone here in Ur, if you'll come with me, God's going to make me a great people. If you come with me, God would God said to him, have you ears, Abraham? Do you hear what the Spirit is saying? Get thee out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of thy father's house, out of thy kindred. You shall leave them. But when God spoke to Moses, he said, you shall bring my people out of Egypt. Supposing Moses said, no, 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 just wait. You took Abraham out on his own. So, obviously, there's some truth in this matter. I better leave father and mother. I'll take Zipporah with me. Or whoever else. <laughs> but I will go alone I'm sure he would have shed a load of trouble but he would never have come to the throne he would never have been an overcomer we're always like this If we lived in the day of the exile, the overcomers were the group that were with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, not Esther's lot. Thank God they knew deliver deliverance and they knew blessing and they knew much else, but I'm sorry to say it. They were not related vitally to the purpose of God. But if I had argued that God had most wonderfully delivered us all in the exile, 
And we had a purity of worship and a purity of Bible study and a purity of fellowship. And the Lord was blessing us. Why, look at so-and-so. He's in charge of the stock exchange. Look at so-and-so. He's got that whole chain of grocer's shops. Look at so-and-so. Um, well, I won't go on. But I mean, you know, we could say, the Lord's blessing us. And God was behind Esther marrying that heathen king. We would have been entirely wrong. You see, we need an understanding of the times we live in. I think this is a tremendously important matter. Our Lord is in the midst of seven churches. They represent the whole church of God in time and on earth. And there are seven lampstands. Get this clear, dear child. Though our Lord said the seven lampstands are churches, it is perfectly clear that when he removed the lampstand, the church went on. What then did our Lord mean with the lampstand unless he meant the testimony of Jesus? In other words, you see, this testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, is the thing that has been present at the beginning of every move of the Spirit of God in church history. And if only people had ears to hear, they could have heard what the Spirit was saying to the churches at that time, and would have heard the words of our Lord to him that overcometh. Well, I grant to sit down with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. You see, we are so often living in the past. You know, we are living in our church life, our church organization, our church, always in the past, always in the past. Amongst us Christians, only what is a hundred years old is respectable. Oh, for a spirit that is related to the purpose of God. Oh, for a, for a heart that is devoted to what God is seeking to do in our own day and generation. We are in a phase of recovery, our generation. You will notice the unhappy conditions in these churches. Jezebels and Balaams and Nicolaitans and I don't know what else. But it is interesting that our Lord never tells anybody to come out. Now these are not churches that we call churches. We make a great mistake when we think that these churches are what we see everywhere as churches. These were real churches. These were believers gathering together on the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. But there was much that was wrong. Whilst the lampstand was there, the Lord never said, come out. In other words, we must always stay until the lampstand goes. Of course, then people will immediately say to me, how do you know when the lampstand's gone? That is another matter. A very involved matter indeed. Oh, how I've had to wrestle with this with some of our beloved brothers and sisters in things that are really going off the rails. 
And they feel like the old exclusives that somehow or other if they come out of that it'll be spiritual suicide. Indeed, many do have nervous breakdowns <coughs> and much else because of this psychological bondage sometimes. But, dear child of God, you and I are to stay with the lampstand. When the lampstand goes, we go. I shall be the first. Once the lampstand goes, I'd not stay a moment. I remember that wonderful old lady that came to us who was a prayer partner in the Billy Graham work. And she'd been, I believe, a Methodist for many years. Forgive me, any Methodist. But I remember how she was telling me how for years she labored on while the ministry became more and more liberal and more and more unbelieving and the fellowship more and more social and more and more social. But she said, I had a loyalty to the whole thing and I felt that I must stay. And then she said, the Lord showed me something and I... I can't remember the exact American phrase she used, but it was, I think she had gotten herself out. <laughs> and she said, then people said to her, Miss so-and-so, how can you leave the sinking ship? And she said in that marvelous southern door, when I saw the captain get in the lifeboat, I knew it was time for me. <laughs> I have never forgotten it. Why stay in a ship that's gone down when the captain himself is in the lifeboat? If our Lord has gone, we go with our Lord. That's what Watchman Nee once meant when he said, when the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle, get parted, always follow the ark of the Lord. But of course we have to be careful here because we know how we can be in this subjective sphere, we can deceive ourselves, delude ourselves, there may be issues, we've had personal collisions, we've had problems and therefore it's a very easy thing to say, the Lord's not with them, I am following the Lord. How many times I've heard it and seen the tragic consequences and end of it all. But what I am saying here this evening is so simple. I am simply trying to say that though there may be very unhappy conditions in the life of these churches, our Lord tells us that we are to overcome there. And dear child of God, that brings me to a number of things. I've never failed to be amazed at the word in 1 Corinthians and um, chapter uh, um, 6. No, I'm sorry, that's... Uh, um, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 19. For there must be also factions among you that they that are approved may be made manifest among you. I find that a remarkable way. It, it helps me to relax. We, we, if you are by nature a perfectionist, you, you like to rule out all those wrinkles. Shouldn't be anything. But our 
the, the word of God says, and there must be factions amongst you. There must be these things, these problems, these warts, these blemishes, these sort of um, things that like boils in the body. That Because this is the way the approved of God among you are made manifest. Not just to us, but to the unseen powers, the angels who are being instructed by what is happening in the church. Did you know you were an object lesson for unseen principalities and powers in which God is illustrating something and exhibiting something? It is very wonderful. Now, it seems to me that it is here in the sphere of the house of God that all that we are individually is put to the test. Now, if there isn't anything there, we can't get through. But if there is something there, we come through by the Lord in us. For instance, in the matter of fellowship and unity, we learn to give diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with all lowliness of mind. Very often, the Spirit that destroys the unity of the Saints, there's a haughtiness of spirit, a haughtiness of mind. Lowliness of mind, giving diligence to keep the unity of the spirit. You can't keep the unity of the spirit unless you know what your oneness is. If you thought it was doctrine or details or technique, or experiences, you're going to come unstuck. But if you know it's Christ, you know your foundation. For the Holy Spirit is the custodian of the oneness of Christ, and he commits himself to keeping that unity. It's a hard thing at times, because temperamentally we are so different. And believe me, 90% I would put it as high as that, but I'll drop it, because most people think I exaggerate. <laughs> to 78%. <laughs> but I would say that at least 75% <laughs> of our problems in fellowship are due to temperamental collisions. A failure to recognize how the other party ticks. Oh, we get so upset about the person who is always ahead. We feel they're empty. Anyone that's always in the forefront, always taking the initiative, always you hear their voice, they must be empty. Because the deep ones keep their mouths sewn up. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? When you think of the Apostle Paul, who opened his mouth more than anybody else, <laughs> and in whom there was such depth, yet somehow we've got this idea that, that if a person's silent, we say, as you know, silent waters run deep. Oh, our temperamental collisions. We don't understand each other. We don't give time to reckon. We, we, we sometimes, it's only after much experience, and some have much experience and still don't understand this matter of the difference that there is in us all. And yet, you know, 
fellowship and unity, isn't it all put to the test here? How can we ever administer the government of God and the will of God if we've not known what it is to overcome in this simple matter of washing one another's feet? If we don't know what it is to love the brethren, to lay down our lives for one another, and that's not just for those we like, how can we possibly come to the throne? To the throne of the one who gave himself for all of us. Well, you see, you can go on and on in this. There are many, many matters. Take this matter of contribution. Many of us keep our hearts closed, our minds shuttered, and our lips jammed together when it comes to times of contribution. And yet, listen, we are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Doesn't that disturb you? Oh, but you say it's Halford House. It is an interesting thing that people say that when we're all here on Sunday morning, there were too many of us. But even when you cut them down to a third of the size or a quarter of a size, they still keep their big mouths shut. Now you sort of say, well, I think he's very unkind the way he's putting all that. He doesn't understand the problems. But it's, I, I do understand the problems. But I cannot compromise on this matter of overcoming unless you learn to open your mouth and give what you have of the Lord. You will not come to the throne. Don't you kid yourself that because it's all secrets, all you're going to come to the throne. My dear child of God, if you don't learn to communicate, you will never come to the throne. For communication is one of the essential principles of kingship. You must learn to communicate. Now, generally speaking, it's because of complexes, problems, sometimes it's inherited difficulties that keep our mouths shut when it comes to really praising the Lord or contributing. But you will never come listen to me in this matter. I'm not just getting at you. If you have a talent and you are hiding it, you will be sure that talent will be taken away from you. Oh, but you say, no, 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 no. I put great value on it. I want the Lord to increase. I pray the Lord. Yes, yes, but dear child of God, your mouth, your mouth. It's not only your heart the Lord wants. He wants your lips. If you are not prepared to share your Lord with the rest of the house of God, you cannot come to the throne. There are many other scriptures on this matter, aren't there? About stirring up the gift that is within us. About giving ourselves to our particular ministry. Why do you think it's all there? Well, then you say to me, I don't know my ministry. You think you've caught me. You don't know your ministry. Well, I'll tell you one ministry you've got. You can pray. You can pray. If you've never prayed before, start. Start to open your mouth and lead your brothers and sisters. Don't eat one of those great long flowery prayers. 
You must surely have a kindling of your heart when someone else is praying for something. Well, jump in. Don't wait for one of the big guns to get in. Just get in and say, Lord, I second that. And then you can shut up. And then the enemy will come to you and say, what a silly little thing to say. <laughs> Such a small contribution. Do you think God has heard that? But the angels are absolutely... Well, I was going to say in a swoon. I mean, they're all over the place. Listen to that. So-and-so came through tonight. Just a few words. But they came through. Wasn't it wonderful? And all the big guns don't get a mention. I mean, the whole of heaven is talking about it at tea time. All saved each other. You know? Did you hear? So-and-so. So-and-so's come through. So-and-so contributed in the, in the, in the company, in the prayer, time of prayer at Halford House. The big guns, they're so used to us. They're probably as bored with us as you are. Now, I don't mean to just come in and let it all go all over the place. But I, I mean, unless you learn to come in under the anointing of the Spirit, unless you n learn to come in under the direction of the Holy Spirit, not as you, unless you learn these things, how can you come to the throne? It must have been very difficult to contribute in some of these companies mentioned, don't you think? Gosh, it must have been terrible. But they were overcomers. Or again, take the matter of responsibility. I mean, just in a question of inward bearing things upon our shoulders. How can anyone administer the government of God of the ages to come if they haven't started to shoulder the responsibility down here? Maybe it's only small things. But that's just where we all begin. Now, you see, dear child of God, this is a matter, isn't it? It's a big matter we're talking about. It's a very wonderful matter, too. What about the matter of worship? Oh, well, you say, I don't want to be part of those people who just use empty words. I've heard it so many times. Not just here either. I've come to see that it's a disease amongst the people of God. Wherever one goes, people say, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to open my mouth and, and, and be like the rest of them. Be like the rest of them. Where did such pride come from? I should have thought that was the first thing that needed dealing with. Such a person must think they are the overcomer. And they're keeping their treasures to themselves. I don't call that overcoming. Our Lord's not like that. He stoops to hear the simplest cry. And the most lisping praise. I know that there is sometimes empty praise. There is, there are artificial phrases. And all that dreadful preaching that I sometimes feel so sorry for our Lord. 
over. No one has ever been more preached at than our Lord. When all he wants to hear is that he's loved and adored and appreciated. I sometimes think the Lord must be so hurt. But that is no excuse for me to shut up. If everyone else is going to be artificial, well, by the grace of God, let me be real. Let me at least open my mouth and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. But so often these things we feel are phantoms. They're not even real. For we sometimes feel that people won't even respond to anything we might give, and then we find that everyone does. I will not go any further this evening. Uh, we'll speak about the third sphere, which is the house of God and the nations. On another time, perhaps we'll see whether this weekend or further on. But Take these two things very much to heart. This matter of kingship, of overcoming, is related to the individual, to our personal circumstances, to the producing of original spiritual character. And it is also related to the house of God. To whatever phase of recovery or whatever phase in the purpose of God, we happen to be in, in our generation. It is also related to our life together in practical terms. Every time a person goes and washes somebody else's feet, that is, humbles himself before them and really loves them, it is the overcomer in them. It is the law. Every time a person gives diligence to keep the unity of the spirit, when there's every provocation to break, it is the overcomer in them. Every time someone contributes something of the preciousness of Christ, when somehow or other everything outside and around them would stop them, it is the overcomer. Every time you and I worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, it is the overcomer in us. May God make us a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices. May our Lord see something of the travail of his own soul in us, in our attitude to one another, in our being built together, in the way we overcome the problems. No one will ever come to the throne unless God does it here. You may think God could do it for you in Australia or America or I don't know, somewhere else. But let me tell you God must do it here. Where we live Amongst the people we rub shoulders with, even if we have a great ministry or no great ministry, 
Here is the sphere in which you and I overcome. Amongst the people God has set us. May the Lord help us in this matter. May we hear those words afresh. And now I vest in you the kingship which my Father vested in me. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we do pray that thou wilt write this kind of word upon our hearts. Oh, deliver us from misconstructions and misinterpretation. And Lord, write the real lessons indelibly in our hearts. We all want to be overcome as Lord by thy grace. Lead us on with thyself, we pray, that it may be so. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.